take two of this intro. Um, I actually had to go back and listen to the outro again to make sure I'm not completely repeating myself or if I missed something because my first intro didn't work, uploaded, and it went off into the ether somewhere. And now I have a little cold because I was down in Wellington. And I, got, I, I think I need to look up my Wellington history to figure out why you would put that city there uh, before I make too much judgment and complain about the weather and everything like that, like everybody does. And then, of course, you hear, well, you can't be Wellington on a great day. And uh, we can't beat Alaska on a great day either, but I don't live in Alaska. I wouldn't want to live there. Uh, but I hear it is beautiful <laughs> for certain days of the year. Uh, anyway, today we're talking to Gordon Russell, and uh, what a cool dude. Great chatting with him again. He's uh, my first number two, first time I've spoken to somebody again, and I think I could speak to that guy a dozen times and not get tired of it. He's uh, he's interesting, he's talented, his wines are amazing, and he's a generous person with his, uh, his passion and his knowledge, and it's great to speak with him. So... Uh, but once again, we are sponsored by the Giblet Gravels on this uh, current Giblet Gravels little mini-series we're doing. So what you want to do is go to GibletGravels.com, click on Terroir, have it a, a look around, try to understand what makes the Giblet Gravels so special. And then if you want to start your wine exploration, the best place to start is to get the uh, annual vintage selection. So if you go to About, you can read about it there, and then they have a little shop, and you can buy it. And basically, they, every year they give, get a uh, fantastic wine writer and they sit down and pick the best, uh, I think it's six Syrahs and six red Hawks Bay red blends. Uh, and they do a, a little, uh, you know, a little 12-pack that uh, I only recently found out can be uh, ordered by the public, but it does go out to a lot of trade and media. So kind of a special thing if you can get yourself a case of that wine. I'm not saying it's cheap. Uh, but it is worth it. If you look at it in the context of what you would pay for equal wine of that quality from France, for instance, which, you know, Gibble Gravels gets compared to Bordeaux quite a bit, uh, we're pennies on the dollar. It's ridiculous. And I think it's a matter of time before the Gibble Gravels and Hawke's Bay are at that echelon. And in fact, they are becoming, you know, we're seeing some wines that are pushed well past the $100 mark per bottle, which is a little bit of a newer phenomenon in the last few years. And with the way things go, uh, older vintages, things like that will become more and more sought after. So check that out. Also, uh, I always forget to mention to hashtag decibel wines and hashtag drink decibel if you guys are out there. And uh, if you want to follow me at decibel Dan on Twitter, and please go to the website and the store and check out the wines and use the promo code DB Podcast if you want to get 10% off any of the wines. Also, check out Esk Valley. Uh, I think in the outro I talk about that a little bit. Uh, special place. And Gordon goes over the amazing property there and what's going on with Villa Maria these days. So check that out and let's talk to Gordon. Cheers.
Gordon, first, you're my first number two. <laughs> yeah, I remember the first time. It was many moons ago, wasn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, it, uh, time's gone fast, but uh, yeah, it's a bit slightly more official now. We did that at, at your dining room table while the, the while dinner was being prepared yeah, for us. Yeah, it was a winter winter sort of evening, if I remember, a bit like this. Yep. Well, I think that's what's... Uh, well, that's why you're a good dude. I suggested we do it, and he said, not only that, why don't you come over for dinner, and we'll open some good wines and everything, but now I got you on a, well, a nice uh, Hawks Bay winter's day, uh, brisk morning. wasn't too bad. I'm actually got the blood pumping this morning. We walked up the hill this morning because you met the cousins. Yeah, I drove by that this morning, and first, I don't know, just looked up, and, you know, that rocky sort of formation up on the hill there, and... I was thinking it's a nice place to build a house up there. The views would be amazing. Yeah, there's nothing but sheep and, like you said, and mm. rocks and weeds up there now. But um, I've done a couple little videos from up there because you can almost see Crownthorpe. You can see the Ohiti vineyards from, I guess there's Peter yeah. Robertson's vineyards or Lease or whatever. You can see the edge of the Gibbet Gravels, and yeah. you can see the ocean, and you can see almost both mountain ranges, certainly the southern ones, and then uh, the Naroa River which we'll obviously talk about in a little bit. Uh, and over top of all of Bridge Pa, you can see the entire triangle from up there. Doesn't leave much. I mean, you can't see my house in Bayview. Yeah, yeah. It's not much of, else left. It's kind of around the corner, yeah. You basically just can't quite see Napier from up there. So I'm going to take those guys up to Mata Peak maybe later yeah, today, awesome. and, and you'll see everything from there. Yeah. You know, you basically see it all because you can see this uh, sort of special wine region that we're in um but what's going on with you man oh I don't know since we last talked i mean much of the same in some respect just you know i say years come by and become a bit wiser and smarter and um you know new challenges new seasons new music new foods yeah, you know, I, I, life evolves <laughs> it's all it's awesome i've actually got a few people that have come to me uh, and said, oh, I listened to Gordon's episode. And I got like four new bands out of that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I can't remember what was. Well, what I can't was. help that. I'm, I'm addicted to music, um, amongst other things. So just forever reading blogs, listening to new music. Um, and it's always, I mean, as you realize, nothing's forever. Nothing is totally new. It's just in some respects a rehash or an amalgamation of things of the past. And But it's still you still give praise to people who are clever enough to do it well. Yeah, the conversation continues, and um, I remember I was listening to that guy. I don't know why I just thought of this, but that guy, Michael Kiwanuka, you know that yeah, yeah. uh, African-English artist? Anyway, another set of tracks. I was in Italy listening, and I put them on, and this guy who spoke no English just kind of looked at, asked Mara, like, who is this, you know? And he said, oh, I like it, but it sounds like it's from 1965 or something, you know? <laughs> and but, but he was like, cool. It's like, as it went on and on, he was like, yeah, I've heard that. That's cool. That's like, a, yeah. you know, it's like, but it's, it wasn't, it's not quite Otis Redding and it's not quite, you know, there's uh, a mix of prog rock in there yeah, as well. Yeah. Know? And, and it's, yeah, certainly as uh, the last couple albums have gotten uh, a little more experimental in that sense. But uh, it is a conversation that keeps going, which. And you can apply the, the same thing to wine as well. Totally. Just so, saying. you know, wine 
just it's it's a reinvention of what has gone on in the past and it's just it's growing it's becoming more interesting um more global um it's exciting yeah that's what's uh nowadays you really really see the conversation the international conversation affecting you know I mean, certainly in New Zealand, even in my time here, we were not getting as much international wine readily available to the public as there is now. You know, I was just up in Auckland and, you know, it's pretty exciting. It's first, you know, the last few years there, there must be more importers now bringing in good wines. There is, but I, I tell you what, I reckon one of the things which has really worked in New Zealand's favour over the years um, is that there have been some great wine importers and, you know, I mean, many of them still exist now. I mean, obviously, Glengarry and Peter Maud and, and so forth. And we've had an access to, I mean, whether it's buying wine on Premier, buying, um, you know, great international wine. And I've got to say, at an affordable price if you go back 25 years. And... I think there's a lot of us um, who have had access to some of the world's great wines and been inspired by them and then applied it to our own grapes, whereas I think a lot of other New World countries haven't been quite so inspired by the the classics as such Mm. and have kind of been more inspired by the um, more international styles of wine. So, no, I think New Zealand's been blessed with its wine import business, much more so than Australia. I mean, you know, it's... Yeah, I was in Australia and I can't find anything but Australian wines in yeah, anywhere, you yeah. know. Um, so. Which might be a bad thing that we're just drinking international wine rather than drinking our own, but it, I think it's good for the international wine market that they're getting New Zealand wines, which are, are well-grounded, I think, on sort of, um, you know, the classics. Uh, but there's also, as you know, you just uh, had a uh, assistant winemaker for four or five years from France. That there's yeah. international people like myself yeah, coming through and affecting the terroir and affecting the winemaking. And yeah. you know, certainly this, you know, second wave or well, well I shouldn't say second wave, fourth or fifth wave of uh, or this generation. I know all my peers that are kind of assistant winemakers and becoming head winemakers you know, half or from somewhere else, you know, and it's also because a lot of Kiwis grow up on an island and they want to go, Yeah, they want to go and work in France or America. I or also, like it, it's funny though, because I also think it's the lure of New Zealand wine. Totally. And I mean, that's how, my yeah. you know, the, the uniqueness and the, the style of it is, you know, I mean, I think a lot of young winemakers come here because they think they can learn from what we're doing here in New Zealand and then realize when they get here that it's not actually about what we're doing here. It's about the place itself that Mm. makes the wines. Um, But yeah, I've, you know, I've had, I've got a Canadian assistant winemaker now. I mean, prior to that, it was um, Pierre for, you know, a few years. And um, that exchange of knowledge both ways is, is really interesting. It's great. Yeah. The, um, I know for a fact, talking to, yeah, it's one thing for me where I taste a lot of New World wines in Philadelphia and then decide, well, I see New Zealand as a great opportunity and I want to go and uh, learn there and learn what they're doing. But it's it's a whole something different when you know, somebody comes from France where they could easily stay there and work in an industry, but they see the value in something new and exciting. And 
maybe getting in on the ground floor of something, but also, I don't know, for me, it was just smelling and tasting the wines from New Zealand. And I thought, what the hell is going on there? And uh, because there is quality winemaking and they're, you know, they're making classic varietals, but there's something totally different. And it is the place, like you said, in these, these uh, certain sites and just overall, I guess it's our young soils and mm. interesting UV light and all that kind of yeah. stuff, you know. And I think we're unencumbered by um, rules and regulations as well. Mm. So you can plant whatever you want, where you want, and it's it makes an exciting and, you know, an exciting and you never quite know what's going to happen wine industry. Yeah, I think what's also interesting is the last 10 years even that I've been here, and you, you probably noticed it even... You kind of said in your last three years or four years since I've talked to you, because I think it was about 2012 or 13 we spoke. Yeah, that... Time flies. Yeah, sure. uh, but that the industry kind of pivots <clears throat> pretty quick, too. You know, here we're, oh, that, you know, that might not be working for us and we're going to try this. I mean, not completely, but, you know, yeah. we're, there's things that keep developing and changing here and it's not so stagnant or like, oh, that's all, that's what we have to do and that's all we're going to do or that's all we're going to grow and that's the only way we make wine here or, or something like that. So, yeah. um, yes, it's exciting. So what's going on up the terraces? It didn't get, uh, washed away by a uh, wow. cyclone. Uh, what was her name? Uh, Who was the cyclone this year? Uh, there was cyclone cook and there was Debbie. Debbie. I was thinking of Debbie. Debbie does. So, deluge. so Debbie came before, before cook cook, obviously was recognized earlier but took a slow path to get here mm. so yes one was rain and one was one was wind um both of which we had our grapes off before they you know were an issue and in terms of the terraces vineyard itself i mean there was no issues um but the more time i spend making wine from that site the more i realize how unique and how beautiful it is it's incredible mm. Yeah, it's such a. How much? What's what's the percentage of what's grown there again? Um, I well, want to toot the Malbec horn, obviously. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's a Malbec-based wine, which makes it unique. Um, so, it it depends. I mean, generally around forty percent Malbec, and then the next sixty percent between Merlot and Cabernet Franc. Mm -hmm. So it just depends on the harvest. Depends on um, you know set and so forth as to what the percentages are. But do you think Cab Sav would do okay up there? Or? Um, there was Cab Sav in there initially, actually, but um, when it was first planted in 89. But unfortunately, Cabernet was put into the coolest part of the vineyard. Oh, and, yeah. you know, that, that wasn't realised at the time. I mean, it was where the sea breeze clipped the top of the vineyard. And, you know, I mean, it just, in the end, it wasn't going to ripen. And we used it till 1994 and then pulled it out. But, yes, there is a place for it, but... I think it's kind of settled into its own style, um, and I don't think it, it needs it, quite honestly. I yeah, think no, it doesn't. The fact that it's Malbec, Merlot, and Cabernet Franc probably makes it globally unique rather than just, um, you know, New Zealand unique. The fact that it's dry farmed, organically farmed, um, the fact that it's co-fermented, harvested as a field blend, fermented in concrete fermenters. I mean, we're, we're talking about... A wine which is you know one off in the world of wine totally yeah no i was more asking about it just if it was a decision from the beginning but obviously you guys have worked it out over the years and 
Mm. Just kind of led by experience into this this way. So if anybody wants to go back and listen, there's probably more about uh, Gordon's uh, punk rock history and uh, how he ended up becoming a <laughs> winemaker and traveling around, I think, on a motorbike or something like that from memory. Uh, and uh, But briefly, how long have you been at S-Valley? Um, I arrived first of all as assistant winemaker. Um, Grant Edmonds, who's now at Cellini, was, um, was my boss at the time. We'd been working at the Villa Maria winery prior to that. Came down together and Grant, that was just prior to Christmas in, I suppose, 1989, and worked for um, as, as assistant winemaker for two or three years in 1993. Um, Grant was shifted north to Auckland and I ended up taking over the range for what was still I think the worst harvest probably of my <laughs> tenure there. Um, that was a tough, tough beginning that one but we seemed to get through pretty well so. Yeah. Mm. So it's since 1993 as winemaker. And am I allowed to even ask what's all this new, you mentioned Villa Maria, it made me think of a new exciting development down the road from here. Yeah. And the fate of Esk Valley at this stage? Um, well, a lot of, if not all, our winemaking will end up at the Tiawa site. Mm. I mean, with it, well, there we're building a whole lot of concrete fermenters, trying to duplicate um, what we've got at Esk Valley. And I think at the core of Esk Valley is 23 open-top concrete fermenters. Um, Absolutely. just gives us, a, I suppose, a uniqueness, the fact that they are... Um, uh, there's no temperature control they're set into the earth and so forth so we'll try and duplicate all of that um, you know what actually happens to the Esk Valley site I mean there's a lot of history there obviously 80 years of, of histories, Terraces Vineyard our Reserve Chardonnay block at the front so going forward I don't know I, you know it's seriously I mean I don't think everything has been decided yet yeah it's, no, it's no. ongoing but but I, just I think that, that, that idea that the, they're building the concrete fermenters there I think you mentioned that a long time ago but I wasn't sure yeah that, that's sort of awesome to hear you know so well, it's quite an exciting yeah. project actually trying to um, you know the opportunity to, to design some new fermenters which are gonna you know utilize all the experience both good and bad we've got from the ones which we currently have, and just trying to update them and make them better than what we've actually got. And so seal, seal better, things um, like that? Yeah, or? I mean, the ones we've got currently can't be used as wine storage. They're only for um, fermentation. So being able to utilise a concrete tank for storage in the classic old world manner, I, I like oh, the concept of that. that. <laughs> yeah, um, Having them so that they um, can be drained so I've got skin door in them rather than they um, as we've currently got have to dig them out manually yeah um, so yeah there's there's it, it's an interesting process actually yeah and I, I would think I think we've talked about it before but one thing I remember you saying a while ago was whoever built the because you don't know who built the, the ones up at Ask right it's well I mean of, no the family that built it but I mean they don't know how they nailed those kinetics like no. perfectly right. And, no, and um, and it does seem to me. So I've taken literally the exact dimensions that we currently use and just trying to duplicate that. I mean, it's four and a half ton of grapes, um, and four and a half ton of grapes without temperature control, um, given 
you know the right thickness of concrete walls and so forth I think is allows us the opportunity to um, use make wine without having to utilize any outsource of energy as such to manage the ferment. yeah well, it seems like it's just about enough where once the ferment kicks in it would be generating just enough heat where even certainly two ton fermenters in plastic seem to lose a lot of heat you know and it's yeah. tough keeping that temperature up you end up putting heating pads on them and wrapping them in yeah. insulation it's like if you can pull that all off with concrete it's just magical I bet. Yeah, yeah been there um concrete seems to absorb um fermentation temperature and hold it for a significant period so you know you can get to the peak of ferment and then coming down the other side there's just enough residual um warmth in the concrete to you know for us i mean we haven't had a stuck ferment in those um, fermenters for years is it um, generally wild in there or? um depends depends on the harvest i mean if, if but there's fate... got to be some some latent stuff in oh, there. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. God, absolutely. I mean, I wonder how wild our yeasts are. I mean, I think best just saying um, uninoculated musts or uninoculated juices these days. I mean, you know, there's 15 years worth of commercial yeasts that have, you know, They're living in every crevasse yeah. in the place. So. Well, I found it pretty funny. This year I did a bit of Malbec in a fermenter I borrowed from... Uh, William Murdoch, who does all, is all organic, and they do all wild ferments there. And I've never had a ferment just like about two and a half days in, just took off, never had an issue, never went stinky, completely finished off dry, was, you know, not an issue at all. And in a tough year where, you know, um, we weren't talking about uh, the cleanest fruit coming through, so but no issue. Uh, yeah. It was pretty remarkable, and I thought eh, there's probably something, some latent stuff hanging on there. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I didn't even really have to warm it up; it just kind of took off. So, uh, yeah, I think there's more and more of that going on, probably in the vineyards too. You know? I'd say so. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, I think uh, it's the one way to make. You know, if you're going to make unique wine and it's going to have your personal stamp on it, I mean, you know, why introduce you know products which are produced or you know manufactured elsewhere in terms of commercialized yeasts and so forth i mean if you want a truly unique product you've got to just let your landscape and your winery do it for you mm. um so getting on now to the matter at hand the how which wines from s valley are giblet gravels wines obviously you make like giblet gravels and it's it, but they are they are we make make a selection. Um, uh, I'll start with the white, which is Vidalo. So it depends very much on the harvest itself, that's, that's whether, <laughs> we, yeah, whether it, um, whether our plantings and the and the gravels give us enough fruit to meet our case expectations or or to meet our demand. Um, we used to get maybe fifteen ton a harvest out of Gimlet Gravels block. Um, 2016 it was down to 3 2.9 or 3 something you know something ridiculous um, this year I think it was about 7 but we also have planted another block which is in the Joseph Solar vineyard which we use to supplement um, our Vidalo production if our uh, Gimlet Gravels block doesn't give us our you know requirement so ideally that's Gimlet Gravels. I think the 
um, Videla on the gravels. I mean, you know, who would have thought? Mm. And the only reason we planted there was because we didn't want to lose control of it and we wanted to plant in a company vineyard. And it was the only company vineyard we owned at the time that had a bit of, you know, uh, beer dirt on it. Mm. So um, so that that's interesting wine. Um, well, that, we'll pause there for a second because... Um, it shows, I think I mentioned this when I was speaking to Ollie, that uh, Villa Maria is always uh, within the group and the wineries. There's always, they're doing interesting single varietal, single vineyard things. And so where did that come from? Where did Verdell? Well, I mean, it, it, it sounds, I mean, it sounds interesting now, but it was even more interesting perhaps in um, 1998 when we got, to, when we planted it. Um, mm. Five years prior, I had... Um, attended a company workshop as such it was called towards 2000 and it was part of it was what varieties aren't planted could we plant and Fidelo was one which was becoming popular in Australia and it, you know these old Fidelo vines which I'm sure were first taken to make um, Madeira style fortified wine had been turned into dry table wine and no one had ever I would say imagined doing doing that but um you know, it was becoming popular in Australia, pre-Sauvignon Blanc days, dare I say. So, mm. you know, here's a variety which retains its acidity, has low pH, ripens easily, um, making, you know, fresh and crisp Australian seafood white. And, I mean, I knew of it and thought, wow, be something, you know, I'd like to give that a crack. That That can be my project as such. And... Took us five years to get the plant material through quarantine to propagate it up and then finally put it into the gimlet gravels and mm. we end up, you know, for years learning about what is a unique and pretty weird variety, dare I say. It's got tiny berries, thick skins, loose bunch. I mean, so loose, in fact, sometimes it's got like two berries in the bunch. Um, you know, and they, those are the, the problem, you know, that that's ultimately been the problem with it. But um, low pH ripens really early in the season. We've harvested in February before. A um, lot of acidity and pretty unique um, aromatic profile and, you know, passion fruit, mandarin, um, exotic and really interesting wine. And No, I, I always, if I see that on a list, I always go for it. That yeah. The old Shannon that you guys make, but um, Portuguese varietal uh, yeah. cousins maybe elsewhere. Uh, well, I I think in terms of flavor profile and style of wine, it's um, it's you know um, similarity to Albarino can't be overlooked. Totally, um, yeah. and also Gadeo or Gadello, um, very similar. So you know those Galician whites or whatever, um, it is effectively one of those very much in that family anyway so great resistance to botrytis um you know handles the wettest years easily i mean we've just had a, a sort of wet year where sugars have been um you know noticeably low across all our varietals but we still harvested the um Fidelo at around 23 bricks which i mean i'd probably awesome. question that there's anything out you know in clean condition as well so you know that that probably says a lot about its its potential. Mm. Cool. Mm. And then um, 
other wines? Oh, from? sorry, Gimlet Gravels, yeah. So white's another white from there? Uh, no, that's a white, but I do think, um, funnily enough, that the gravels themselves aren't. They can make some pretty good white wine, and I think, you know, Craggy Range um, and ourselves and, and previous, you know, former years when we had Chardonnay planted in the gravels, it seems that white wines grown in those gravel soils make wine with low pH, a real mineral sort of aspect yeah. to it, which is unique early ripening which is which is good um and make really elegant styles of white wine do you think there's any white varietals that are we're missing the boat on out there that we should try in the gravels you know um even just well, if, I you think had, if, if, if you the dallo's worked i mean albarino certainly and yeah. opportunity i mean like i i said i've always liked the chardonnays that come from there um oh you know i mean if you go back actually oh to when was last time 1998 i think we had some chenin blanc growing in the gravels as well and it used to make amazing wine um, both sweet and dry style so i i think the potential of those gravels for white wine is is untapped and yeah. it'd be interesting to see what happens but you know why in many respects i suppose are you going to plant what is recognized as being you know, a blessed site for red wines, totally, yeah. which won't grow anywhere else. Why would you sort of fill it with whites that potentially can be grown elsewhere? So, yeah. you know, that it'll be interesting to see what develops um, with time. So what else have we got planted in there? We also make a commercial um, uh, red wine, which we label Gimlet Gravels Merlot Cabernet Malbec. Uh, the volume of that is up to around 10,000 cases. Um, all made in you know in small batches in the winery from our um, Gimlet vineyards, all aged in French oak barrels for a year, um, literally made by hand in the cellar. I mean, you've been to our cellar. I mean, there's no it's barrel no racks. It's, no it's all it's all it's all stacked by hand, and it's all racked. You know, two to four times depending on the the vintage. It's it's a handmade wine at I think reasonable volumes and sold at a and incredibly reasonable price um, we make re uh, reserve bottlings of uh, Merlot Cabernet uh, Malbec Cabernet Franc um, whatever whatever the vintage dictates which I think over time has been regarded as a classic and famous New Zealand red wine and also we make some Syrahs as well so no we we're in big in the gravels and utilize the name and the quality of the soils and the climate and so forth to and are, I'm, I'm sure there's sites that are specifically we know gordon's going to get these this fruit but does it come down to it some years where within the group without getting into the politics too much that you say hey we'll take on this or um, well, we're going to experiment or no this is going to go to the villa you know no, no i mean funnily enough not really i mean we have you know we've as a company have substantial holdings in the Gimlet Gravels, but it's all been subdivided up to, you know, to Vital, to Yawa, um, you know, Thornbury, Villa Maria, Esque Valley. We've all got our own individual plots, which we have learnt. I mean, I've certainly learnt over time what each of those individual sites is good for. I mean, there's certain Merlot blocks which make pretty wine. There's certain Merlot blocks I get which make wine with a strong tannic backbone, and I allow them you know to i don't force my hand with them i just let them 
do what they do naturally and utilize that each year in a blend for a specific purpose and you know i mean hugh and the others in the group would be doing exactly the same thing so yeah but do you see um you know with this new winery coming up um I mean, certainly you're gonna have a lot more interaction not that I, i've worked for villa maria in the past and yeah. i saw just firsthand just by being a a waiter and working in the tasting room and a little bit in the vineyard and in the winery that you guys meet quite you know regularly and yeah. discuss things which is really good to see there seems to be a pretty good amount of communication between winemakers and and viticulturists and growers and all that um but i would think with this new winery coming up there's gonna that's gonna be amplified a bit and that you know your paths are gonna be crossing daily you know whereas uh you know you, you all be seeing each other's fruit. You all be seeing. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah it's, it's kind of exciting. Yeah. I mean, really don't know quite what to expect yeah. in, in some respect. I mean, you know, he'll be saying the same, but I mean, our own, you know, we've been living in our own cocoon, making our own decisions, and we, we still foresee that happening. But yeah, it, it is obviously going to, there's going to be new equipment, there's going to be, um, new ideas i mean you know it's like when you work at anything i mean if someone has success with something i mean you you want a piece of the action or whatever in some respect as well so you know i think there'll be a lot of cross-pollination as such so you um, don't see uh you know a uh, vital reserve or dello coming out anytime soon <laughs> um, no i don't i don't think so i think we're you know we we we're quite competitive in our own ways as well. Sure. You know? I mean, we're great, cool. we're great friends. We've all got our own styles and our own thoughts on things. And I think they're all complementary. And I, I expect that very much to continue. Well, just out of the four winemakers, you know, you talk Richard, Richard Painter, Hugh Creighton, Nick yeah. Picone, and you. I like every one of you guys. I respect every one of you guys. And you're all really different guys, you know, yeah. like very, very different. And so uh, I think... Uh, but I, we I share a love of wine, yeah, yeah, and that that's ultimately what it's all about. I mean, you know, we got different hobbies and interests outside, but you know, get us together in a room, and we we love wine. Yeah, no, that's cool. Yeah, I'd like to be a fly on the wall, one of the, some of those uh, meetings and stuff. But um, so, what else, man? You're um, I caught you now, but you're going to be doing any traveling soon, or? Um, yeah, quite exciting for me is um, we are going to, all, you know, albeit small start as, as things are, but um, start selling some wine to Japan. Oh, so that's cool. Get to go to Japan. Uh, trip's been planned for late September. And I've always wanted to go to Japan. Yeah, I mean, me too. You know, I've, just... I've been fascinated since I moved here. I, I just found that even from when I was at EIT and now working in the industry and back and forth to California, I found not that I had any problem with other, <laughs> other immigrants or Asian immigrants here, but I really gravitated to a lot of the Japanese that, uh, and I just, it's obviously like a refinement of the culture and there's just something about it that is just, I'm just so curious and I really yeah. want to go and I really want to see it firsthand. And I think they have a real love and appreciation of wine and New Zealand wine yeah. as well. And uh, from all reports from a few friends that are in the industry, if you release a wine and it's and it's bought there, they are going to read everything on your website. They're going to find out everything they possibly can about the wine. And I would be real curious to catch up with you when you get back to see what, you know. Yeah, I'm 
really excited about that one. I mean, I love Japanese food. I just, you know, just, I can just, yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. Mm. I, I think, you know, if, if we can find the right placements, we've had quite a few um, visitors over the years, both from our distributor or importer and, um, and some key clients of theirs, and they all seem really keen on, on the wine, so sort of experience the Esk Valley story and the, the place and, and so forth. And I, I think they all seem very keen to tell our story, to share our wine with... I mean, and I, I think just given New Zealand wine's um, sort of acidity and freshness and perfume and just, you know, just the way it is, I think, you know, that if you can translate that to food, it's almost Japanese food in a way as well. And I just think uh, that marriage is going to work really well. I always joked around about how, you know, even when you talk about a Rodello, but even some of the, um, you know, I make Viognier, and mm. who would have thought these, you know, Northern French and German whites would go so well with all this great Asian food. And we get it here in New Zealand. We, we're kind of like the, oddly, if you, if you looked at a map, we're a little bit out of the way, but we're kind of the crossroads for that. Um, probably Australia is too, but they just don't make the same style of wines that we do, uh, particularly in the white spectrum. But but also Pinot Noir and some of our more. I mean, we opened a Malbec last night, and uh, you know my two cousins are here, not the biggest uh, wine drinkers, but the one comment was like, "Oh, this is lighter than some of the Malbecs. It's a yeah. little more refreshing," um, and they found it. You know, it wasn't like a big heavy red, and I think probably across the board we can still make wines that are ripe lush good tannins but they're still refreshing at the end you know they fit you know my my favorite sort of perhaps wine descriptor these days is delicious <laughs> and you know if you if you'd said to me 20 years ago you know delicious i would have seen it as sort of or well, not insulting but you know, flippant, and you know, here was I trying to make wine that was complex, age-worthy, serious wine, which a, a wine connoisseur would appreciate as being, you know, a globally great example of its type. Failing to realise, in some respect, that it's got to be delicious as well. If it's not delicious, people aren't going to want to drink more of it. And while they're drinking more of it because it's so delicious, they then can be thinking how great it is and what a, a great example of its type. But deliciousness, and that comes down to acidity, balance, lightness, um, just, you know, that, that that's a key factor in Dude, wine these days. Dude, that's all I'm trying to do with my wines is I want people to drink the whole bottle. Yeah. You know, I want them to enjoy it. Um, and I, and then I think another. because I came from a restaurant background, like I knew the wines that I liked and that I saw were successful were wines that, um, uh, not only were they like, oh, this is an exciting, interesting wine by the glass, and then they'd switch to something else and drink a whole bottle of something else. Yeah. And uh, I think you can be both. I'm not saying that, but you certainly can be heavy on the. This is so weird and interesting, and but phew, I can't take another glass of it, you know, because it's too crazy. And you know. Um, I think it's probably a personality thing too. And, uh, I certainly have some friends that are a little more eccentric or a little more, they're trying to do something really challenging and interesting. I'm not saying I haven't done that with a couple of my wines, but I, without a doubt, the over, 
if I, if I think if I can do anything is try to make and pick wines and fruit that I'm like, I know I can make a wine that are going to drink the whole thing. Yeah. And that's really the name of the game, I yeah. think, you know? Yeah. Um, cause it's still fun that way and challenging, but you're great wine. Great wine should be delicious. Yeah. <laughs> delicious. You know? Um, I'm sure it all is. So, um, anywhere else you're heading besides Japan? Um, I go to the UK every year. Um, so, you know, sort of spend a, a week or, or two there. Um, bit of time in Holland, which has grown into a really good market for mm. us. Um, you know, it just shows, I think, you know, the Dutch market. We were there I'm sort of at the very beginning. Um, been going there probably, if I said 15 years, I mean, probably wouldn't be too far off it. And, you know, initially Dutch there was a fine wine market there, but there certainly wasn't a, a wide, widespread enthusiasm for fine wine. I mean, it's a lot of cheap rosé and, you know, the, it was a very uneducated market, which is kind of strange given, you know, its proximity to the, the great vineyards of the world in some respect. But, you know, it's grown dramatically over the last few years. I see it's, you know, a really large market for New Zealand wine these days. And, Esk Valley has been caught up in it. And That's awesome. Yeah. So they, they certainly have the restaurants there. I've been through. Yeah. Oh, and they have great food. And, and I mean, um, our, our route to market has always been um, fine wine and the on-trade. So spend a lot of time visiting, um, you know, independent stores, visiting restaurants. And like you say, some of them, you know, two or three Michelin stars. And there seems to be a, a lot of enthusiasm for our wine. So no, mm. it's, it's, it, that's been good actually and it just proves to me that if you perhaps stick at it and you stick at it and get known and just create relationships with people um they can tell your story to their customers and you know it just works for everybody so yeah and you guys deliver the goods too that's the you know it's a certain you know you say 15 20 years i've tasted older vintages you know there's esk has been making S Valley's been making great wines and for a long time, so that's well, it, really important, you know. Well, I mean, just, it, you know, one of the things that actually I, I found very satisfying of, you know, is that I get to open occasionally, you know, 15, 20-year-old bottles of S Valley wine, which I've been responsible for making. And, I mean, you know, I think back to then, I think there was certain naivety in it, <laughs> in it all and what I know now far surpasses what I knew then, but... Um, the wines have seemed to have aged really well, and it says a lot about um, Hawke's Bay, the Gimlet Gravels, the Esk Valley way of making wine, but being able to open a, you know, a 2000 vintage, 1998, 1995, um, the wine's still fresh, youthful, life left in them, and, and classic, albeit unique examples of the classics. It's It's been really satisfying, that, actually. I think one thing... Uh, uh and I'm certainly don't have the length of experience that you do. Um, but one of the things I realized probably only in the last few years is I was not in a panic, but you know, I do have an internal craziness when you're making wine that you're like, you know, just from the fact of walking through the cellar and like, do I hear something dripping or, you know, yeah, you, you know, yeah. that never goes away. But, uh, when you're trying to, you know, finish a wine and get it in the bottle and everything, you're just, you know, trying to be as precise as you can. And sometimes you realize, now, granted, you can totally fuck something up and, you know, something could go wrong and you get a wrong reading. Um, 
you know, maybe you're adding sulfur. I've seen that happen. So yeah. Thankfully, not to my wines, but just an honest mistake between two parties. And all of a sudden, you've got 60 parts free sulfur in a wine, yeah. and it's not going to be ready for four years or so or ever. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so that kind of stuff can happen. And, you, you know, it's good to be a bit paranoid about that. But moreover, I think I've realized that wine's really tough and versatile and can, you know, if the, if, as long as it's made correctly and... You know, I'm not talking about the style and how good the wine is, but usually you, you're usually pleasantly surprised when you open yeah. something that's been made well, particularly reds. But um, I've, had I, some, I think, I've had some whites too. I think you know. screw caps have been incredible aid to um, aging of white wines, especially um, being able to open ten-year-old Chardonnays and they look, you know, God, they're a hell of a lot younger than most most Burgundies of similar age and, and so forth and. You know, I opened, um, when was it, sometime last week, um, but a 2002 Riesling. So, you know, it's 15-year-old Hawke's Bay Esk Valley Riesling. And the wine was amazing. Yes, it was sort of, you know, had slightly deeper honeyed sort of colour and tasted like liquid honey and lime as opposed to some of its, you know, more, um, I don't know, I, I suppose, less... Yeah, more elegant yeah just yeah, yeah exactly so um but how it had matured really well and I, the reason i opened it that was because it was the first wine we ever screw capped um and you know it was just proof of of how good a seal it is for i'm sold i'm not i'm not going back i've had some failures and i wanted to you know like i made some decisions a couple times on some younger wines or wine i thought i'm going to release this early and i actually put it under cork because i wanted it to develop quicker yeah and uh because i knew because of the nature of my business it was going to be you know i was bottling in july and it was going to be or august and it was going to be you know people drinking it in in philly or new york by september october and i thought i need to get it going but i've had failure on some of the cork failure on some of those wines and it's just gutting you know and it's one thing you can't control no and and the some of the more frustrating ones is when you open a bottle and it's not even corked it's like that's not right that's not the wine i made something's wrong and in hindsight i should have just put it under screw cap and let it be young fresher style for the first four or five months at least and then let it settle in but you know, I, I, it's funny, I look at it and, I mean, I know there's resistance from certain markets. I mean, you know, Japan will be interesting. I'm not sure their take on screw caps. Certainly Chinese, from what I gather, would, you know, prefer I think it'll be right. certainly Americans and, and so forth. But, you know, it's what New Zealand wine industry is known for. And also I, I look at the younger generation like my children who are, you know, 21 to 25. I mean, quite honestly... They probably don't have a corkscrew. Um, wouldn't know how to probably, you know, pull a cork out of a bottle of wine and expect it to come with a screw cap. So I think there's kind of a generational change which is happening as totally. well. Totally. No, so. it's happening. It's For me, it was one of those things too where I thought about it. I'm like, yeah, what am I doing? Like, of course. <laughs> I have, I'm in a lucky situation making it wine in New Zealand where there's, you know, fine wines that are a hundred dollars more than than i'm making that are under screw cap like yeah. what's the big deal you know just get over yourself and, and put it put them all under screw cap so that's that's what i'm doing now so um yeah villa maria was obviously instrumental to that what was that 2000 or 2001 or two or something yeah uh, 2001 with a 
They just first first bottlings across the board, and I think two thousand two whites, two thousand one reeds. That's that's really um, great in the sense that they just said not, nah, you know, I've had enough. I can't stand it, and you know, and this is yeah because it was terrible cork coming in. It's gotten somewhat better, but it's still. Uh, I mean, I got a good friend who, uh, probably a mutual friend of ours, who. Uh, you know, imports cork and things like that, but uh, it's it's tough to. I buy screw caps from them instead. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and I think there is room to get creative, not only with the, uh, you know, the closure itself is is what it is, but just with the screw cap and the look and the feel of it. Yeah. You know, I think we're at the, just the beginning of that, and they'll, they'll probably start coming. And there's out the Vino it. lock as well, which, you know, incredibly beautiful seal having a, a glass stopper on the top of the bottle um but you know i i don't know whether the jury's still out on on that or not um but you know that that pretty way of sealing up a bottle of wine yeah as well. it's really cool so mm. so well man we just uh knocked out a quick 45 and uh i think i might leave it there i don't know is there any Anybody you wanted to say hi to across the world and, uh, you know, are you coming to see, visit them soon? Um, <laughs> no, not that I know of, but it, it, it's funny. I had a young young Frenchman um, work for me this harvest, and while he was here, he applied for a, a job, I think, in the Rhone. And um, the person at the other end said, oh, hi, you know, say hello to Gordon. I worked there, you know, in a previous vintage a long, long time ago. So, you know, there's... That's one of the things I actually, you know, I've enjoyed over the years is just each year having, you know, young interns come to Esk Valley and making a whole lot of friends who have, you Injects know, literally... life into, into everything, you know. It's definitely, yeah. I think that's the sort of unwritten uh, you know. rule or great, what's so great about vintage is you get this uh, influx of young people that are really excited and interested and asking a bunch of questions or or it could be somebody who's just in the industry for a short amount of time yeah i mean you know this this year i had a couple of you know a couple of young frenchmen and it was the first time they'd ever left france and mm. you yeah, know i mean it's a pretty well. nervous thing to do to fly the other side of the world and i mean you know not only to to auckland but then hop on a plane or drive down to a place called napier which is you know a long way from anywhere it's you pray that someone's going to be at the other end waiting for you and yeah. so forth. So I know it. Trust me. <laughs> yeah. So you, you know you got to play boss and dad and and so forth and try and make it a good experience for them. And and I like that. I like what they bring, and I think that they also get a lot of benefit from from coming yeah, here no, as well. It's exciting. We had a young French girl again, first time out of France, and you know had never worked out of the French industry as well, and. Well, you know, she was just blown away by just sim some simple things that we did differently, you know. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. But cool, man. We'll leave it there. I'll let you uh, awesome. go. And uh, thanks again for doing it. And I'll have to get together again in another four years or something <laughs> after. You know, that'll be like yeah, episode. Please. But things will have changed. I mean, since we last talked, you know, there's natural, you know, all sorts of natural wine going on and wine and kegs and wine and cans and. You know, it's all exciting. It's pushing yeah, the boundaries and opening up. I've always up. wanted to do a keg wine of, you know, of like a white blend or something like that. You know, yeah. something that would be great by the way. We should be pouring them out cloudy out of the taps beside the craft beer and the and the liquor stores. Hmm. People are getting seasonal wine, which is 
looks like wheat beer and I've got to drink it that weekend or whatever because it's going to go off just like beer. Yeah, well, I got a buddy in South Carolina. They're doing they do growl, beer growlers and they're doing wine growlers yeah. now too, and yeah. it's and it's it's gonna it's gonna get oxidized. So you just have a that's your table wine for the weekend. Yeah. You know, unsulfured yeah. sort of. You know, I I like the concept of it. Yeah, yeah, wine and cans as well. I mean, you know, this it's it opens up all sorts of opportunities and places you can drink it, and you know, the can can be a glass and so forth. So. Yeah, it's it's an ex- exciting times, and it'll keep being exciting forever. That's good to hear from uh, somebody who's been doing it for a while. <laughs> well, you can never close your mind. You no, might as well, yeah, you but know, it's still exciting. Yeah, to, no, it's good that you. I think that's a testament not to you, but also to who you're working with and everything that you don't get. Because you see it, I see people get jaded and beaten down and stuff. You know. Well, it's going back to that music thing as well, where we started, isn't it? That. Um, you know, it's just forever changing, and that makes it exciting. And you yeah, just it is your responsibility to to go out and search and seek and and be a part of it. And uh, sometimes I've I've worked for people that I'm like, do you guys even love wine? Like, do you, what's the where's the passion? You know, and 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 in turn, where's the passion for life? You know, it's like <laughs> seize the day a little bit. You know, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. you know, miserable, complaining about this, and it's like, hey, man. You're doing something pretty cool. You got a good opportunity, you know. Yeah. I mean, you have your down days, but it's pretty sunny today. You know. Oh, it's just yeah, just now. It's nice. <laughs> nice right, drive man. back to the ocean. Cheers. Thanks. Pleasure. Like I said, before we turned the mics off, we kept talking. I probably should have just kept him on. The guy's such an interesting dude and very exciting for him and Villa Maria. But while you can, if if you're in Hawke's Bay or if you're passing through, go check out the Esk Valley site while it's still open. It's such a cool piece of winemaking history. Such a unique, weird place. And, you know, we talked about those concrete fermenters and... It's a unique place. Go check it out. Um, Great wines. Fantastic winemaker. Just been doing it right for so long. And he's sort of a a renegade amongst that uh, Villa Maria group. Uh, He's sort of off doing his own thing. So, uh, again, thanks to to Gordon for doing it. And I get a feeling I'll be talking to him again soon. Uh, Thank you, guys. And, again, go to decibelwines.com. Use the promo code DBPODCAST. And don't forget to visit me in Wellington, 4 to 6, Colt Wine in Thorndon. I'll be there pouring some wines. It's free. Just cruise on in. Casual, free tasting. Hope to see you guys in Wellington. Cheers. Cheers.